Hey, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 8. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 8 and just kind of hold that spot. We are still on the all-powerful Jesus. Granted, I could spend years talking about the all-powerful Jesus, my favorite subject. But uh, I'm going to wrap it up today with this text. You know, we started with Jesus's, uh, uh, Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law. That's where we started in Matthew 8. And then he continues healing the sick. He continues casting out uh, spirits who were oppressing many. And folks, listen, many people, many, many people were brought to him. As the crowds grew, and they did grow, he instructed his disciples, take me across this lake, the Sea of Galilee. Take me to the other side. Well, like last week, we found out they found themselves in the middle of a great storm as they were traveling to the other side, which led the disciples to panic. They were panicking, and they woke Jesus. As Jesus was asleep, they woke him, and he calmed the wind, and he calmed the sea. And this brings us to what happens next. After traveling by boat from Capernaum, uh, Capernaum would be right up here on the northwestern side. Here is the Sea of Galilee, and they sailed across to a place called Gadara, uh, or the country of the Gadarenes, on the eastern side. So he is going across this great lake, and let's pick up there in our story. Look at Matthew 8. We're going to start in verse 28 and read through 34. Matthew 8, 28 through 34. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Wow. Two men were possessed with demons. No one could control them. Listen, although Satan and his agents can possess people, no Christian can be possessed by Satan or any demon. If you're asking why, it's because someone is home. Someone is home in us, and demons cannot enter a Christian because the presence of God resides within that Christian. And this has been proven in today's text that I just read. When God is present, demons have to go. Please remember that as we continue. Now, there is something I want to discuss right off the bat. It's the location. Skeptics love talking about this because they feel like they've proven that the Bible's not valid. Oh, it's flawed. I found a mistake. I want to discuss this real quick before we go any further. Matthew is talking about the Gadarenes or Gadara. 
In your Bible, you could easily have the Gerasenes listed, uh, the Gergesenes listed, or Gadarenes. Jesus had entered in its predominantly into a predominantly Gentile region called the Decapolis. Okay? Now, this also accounts for why pigs were being raised in this region. Now, in Mark and Luke, the textual evidence is strongest for a place called Gerasa, the Gerasenes. Probably in reference to a little village right on the eastern shore. However, there is another city in the Decapolis called Gerasa, and it's about 30 miles southeast of Galilee. Now, 30 miles away, we can see that this is clearly, geographically speaking, incompatible with verse 32 where it talks about this herd of pigs running down a steep embankment into the water and drowning. Gadara, also a Decapolis city, Gadarenes, which Matthew's talking about, uh, was five miles, about five miles southeast of the lake. Now, this is important. Some object to both Gerasa, the one that's about 30 miles away, that's what they're referring to, and Gadara for similar reasons. The similar reasons are distance. They say it can't be either of these places. Well, there's a great historian named Josephus, and he says that Gadara had territory and villages on the border of the lake, and probably this included a little village called Gerasa. Also, coins have been found, coins are discovered where Gadara sometimes had a ship on, printed on their coins. So Gadara was the regional capital of that area, and the external evidence in Matthew favors Gadara, and for some reason, the name of the capital was preferred to Gerasa. I'm going to explain this. First, some scholars believe that this is just simply not a disagreement between texts, but, but a transcription error. I, I'm not really, I don't buy that, but it could be. I mean, they're close. Others state that although Gerasa was 30 miles southeast of the lake, it was of greater importance than Gadara, thus Mark's use of its name. See, Mark was the oldest of the Gospels. The book of Mark is the oldest. And in that, Luke would have used the book of Mark for his investigative research. And that's why you could see the, the commonality there. But I want to go back to the Gadarenes for a minute. This refers to a village of Gadara. It's about, like I said, five to six miles southeast of the Sea of Galilee, close to the lake. And in that surrounding region, which probably, it probably included a village, a little village called Gerasa, which is the traditional site of this exorcism. Now, this is the best accounting for the variant readings in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's the best uh, accounting for it. So when we talk about the Gergesenes or the Gadarenes or the Gerasenes, we are speaking of a location on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. See, the name either comes from a small lakeside village, the actual name, or it comes from the larger city in that region, its capital, right? Or the best known city in the region. For instance, I was born in Florida. I was born in Jacksonville. I was born in Baptist Hospital. All three of those are correct, but they're separate. I was born in downtown Jacksonville or excuse me, downtown uh, Jack, uh, 
downtown in Baptist Hospital, in Jacksonville, in North Florida. All three are correct, and that's what we have here. It's important to understand Scripture because it can get confusing sometimes. But the location is real. It's just specified differently with the author's intent. The other thing I want to tackle is the two men versus one. If you're familiar with Scripture, in Mark 5 and Luke 8, have the same story, the same story. Matthew states there are two men who Jesus encountered where Mark and Luke talk about one man. Well, what's going on here? All three synoptic accounts record this exorcism, but Mark and Luke specify only one demoniac, one. Rather than assuming that Matthew's just inventing an additional demoniac, right, for theological purposes or, or to substantiate a legally accepted minimum of witnesses. You know, you needed two witnesses, so let's just throw another guy in there. We can um, infer that Matthew had independent knowledge of a second man. See, Matthew is often concerned with giving general details of the narrative, just general, where he mentions there being two demoniacs, Mark and Luke, they give a more detailed account, singling out the spokesman of the two, and they describe him in more detail because he was probably the dominant feature here. He was probably the the prominent of the two uh, as he was identified to have had a legion of demons in him. Uh, It's similar to the incident where Matthew describes the healing of two blind men in Matthew 20, and Mark and Luke, and Mark 10 and Luke 18 mention only one. It's the same kind of thing. We're looking at a key figure. So there is no contradiction in the text. We just have to understand, again, the author's intent. I can tell you, church family, I have two Bibles on this pulpit. There's my first statement. My second statement is I have a Bible on this pulpit. See, we have a contradiction only when one statement makes another impossible and there is no way to reconcile the two. So we are talking about a broad description in Matthew and we're talking about specifics in Mark and Luke. It's important to understand that because when you're reading your text, well, why are they saying one and this saying two? There's your reason. It'd be like me showing up at your house with somebody that's 10 feet behind me, not saying a word, and I come over and have a conversation with you and say, oh yeah, Mark came over and had a conversation with me, not mentioning the other guy, but there was two of us. It's a very similar thing. Now, unfortunately, I cannot tell you about these men. Uh, We're not given any any information. I, I don't know who they were. I don't know why this happened. All we know about them is that they were possessed by many, many demons, Now, this is going to start getting good. We got through the technical stuff, the logistics. Let's talk about the demons. They had been shackled. They had been chained. They broke every chain that was fastened to them into pieces. The shackles were broken into pieces. We're talking about super strength here, folks. They could not be chained. They were guarded at times. They had guards set. Folks, no one had the strength to subdue these men. 
They would cut themselves. They would cry out day and night. Uh, they lived among the tombs. That, I mean, no clothes, absolute filth, bleeding, and I can only imagine what they smelled like. I mean, it had to be a horrible existence living like this. But filth and uncleanliness is all part of demonic activity. And we see that. Can you imagine the fear, though, that, that these, this, the townspeople, I mean, they, they, the fear, they had to be haunted by this. Imagine a psychopath living on your street. You wouldn't let your children out in the front yard to play. Wouldn't it be scary all the time going to bed at night knowing there was a crazy person who was just unhinged and you never knew what they were going to do? Yes, it's unsettling. So I can't imagine how these town people felt. I mean, the women and children, can you imagine that if they had gotten hold of a woman or child? I mean, these are vicious beings right now. Men are not, they are not controlling themselves. They are controlled by something else. It is terrifying to think about. If a man can't control them, oh my goodness. What is a woman and a child to do if they cross their path? See, the Bible says that they were so fierce that no one could pass that way. We cannot skip over that. That is terrifying, right? We're worried about a dog being out in the front yard, right, and getting bit. We're worried about, I've never seen that person on my street before. Why are they walking down my, we go to those, those extremes, don't we? This would be terrifying. So the Bible says they were so fierce that no one could pass that way. Yet when Jesus arrives, they come out. And in Mark 5, 6, it says this. Mark 5, 6, and when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Again, we're talking about the prominent person here. Folks, these men came to Jesus and they stopped. There was no attack. They stopped dead in their tracks. They stopped and they asked a question. In your Bibles, you can see this in verse 29 of our text. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? That's powerful, meaning this is what they're trying to say. What do we have to do with one another? Jesus, why are you here? Why are we confronting you now before the time? See, the time that's coming is judgment. There's a judgment day coming. Every single one of those fallen angels, Satan himself, there is judgment coming. Did you notice something, though? Jesus is not scared. Everybody else is. Don't think for a second these two men weren't terrifying. Jesus is not scared. They are scared. Not the men, the demons. They are scared. See, when Jesus comes, demons must go. Mankind may not acknowledge or recognize who Jesus truly is. I mean, we see this in Scripture. We see this with the Sadducees. We see this with the Pharisees during Jesus' earthly ministry. They may not acknowledge, but you know who will? Demons will. They will tell it like it is. They address him, folks, as Son of God. Demons. Now, they're not worshiping. Don't think for a second, wow, these demons, no, they're not worshiping him. They want to ruin him, but 
they address him as son of God. They know who he is. So I got to ask you, what sort of man is this who can, that, like, that the wind, winds and seas and storms obey him? What sort of man is this that sickness and disease obey him? What sort of man is this that demons answer to him and obey him? I mean, this is our all-powerful Jesus. So these demons, they cried out. Satan's agents is what I like to call them. Legion, Legion was the name given because they are many. Legion spoke through them. But you know what's interesting? All throughout Scripture, God's power, I love this, God's power is always known by Satan and the demonic. It's always known. And it's obvious that demonic activity was much more prevalent during Jesus' earthly ministry. Folks, they were hard at work trying to stop him. This is why you see so much of this in the Gospels. It was prevalent. After his baptism, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, the desert. And you know what? He was tempted by who? He was tempted by the devil, Satan himself. He wanted Jesus. Church family, listen to me. He wanted Jesus. I got to stop him. I know exactly who this is. Jesus fasted during this time in the desert. And for some, this would seem that he'd be at his weakest, right? Fasting, 40 days and 40 nights. He 40, I mean, he's fasting, and Jesus was tempted all along with a few of the temptations being recorded in Scripture. Satan offered our Lord and Savior, get this, Satan offered him alternatives. <laughs> Satan offered Jesus compromises. He offered him lies and deceit. But Jesus fought back. Jesus fought back. He was victorious over Satan because he used the word of God. If you ever read that text, he uses the word of God to combat the devil. And in Ephesians 6, it tells us to put on the full armor of God. Why do we need the full armor of God? Well, Ephesians 6, 12 and 13 tell us this. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Now the armor, the armor that is listed is for our defense and our protection, okay? But there is one piece of equipment that we are given in which we are to use in fighting back. And I'm just going to tell you what it is in verse 17. It says to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God is a sword. Now this sword is used in both defense and offense in standing against evil. And I'm going to tell you this, if this is what Jesus used, you have to know that this is what we are to use. If Jesus used the Word of God, we surely should use the Word of God 
And that is our weapon of choice, God's Word. We have the completed Word of God at our fingertips, at the ready. It's at the ready. We can't be possessed, but church family, we can be influenced and we can be oppressed. There's a difference. He can attack us from the outside. That's why the shield of faith is to extinguish those darts the devil throws at us, but we need the sword to fight back. We can defend, but we also need to go on the offense, and that, my friends, is the word of God. 1 Peter 5.8 proves this. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, a roaring lion seeking Someone to devour, devour, excuse me, believe me. (laughs) The devil wants your attention. He wants your full attention because he wants nothing more than to pull you away from God. This is the influence and this is the oppression of the demonic, and that is real. That is real. But there's a verse in 1 John 4.4. 1 John 4.4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. In us? Yes, someone is home. Our weapon, the Word of God. You know, when Jesus performed these exorcisms, he was demonstrating something. He was showing that he had dominion. It was in one of our songs. That he had dominion over demons. He had dominion over this evil. He proved it time and time again. This story proves it. The disciples and apostles, listen to this, the disciples and the apostles, too, they verified that they were acting in his powerful name. In the power of name of Jesus, that powerful name, they were acting in his name, they were acting under his authority when they performed such exorcisms. But folks, this was part of their ministry at a time when Satan was doing everything that he could stop, do to stop the work of, G, uh, work of God in the person of Jesus. <clears throat> we don't see uh, this kind of demonic activity today like they did in Jesus' earthly ministry. I know there's people out there that argue, but that's a whole other sermon if we were going to talk about exorcisms of the past and exorcisms today. If we were going to talk about demonic activity as Jesus was here presently in today, that's a whole other sermon. And that's not where I want to go today. Because where I want to go today is all about Jesus Christ. So we have his word and we have him living inside us. You and I, here it is. Because we don't have to cast out demons. Here it is. You and I, we are being evangelized and we are being discipled in the word of God. And that is how we fight back in the power of Jesus. We are being evangelized, we are being discipled. You know, there's a verse that I really like here 2 Thessalonians 3 3. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Jesus is our strength. Jesus is our protection. His power. Look at this story. These demons, all of them, were under the power of Jesus. Now, we're going to get into my favorite part here. Let's talk about power for a second. Christ cast out these demons. They went into the swine or the pigs, this herd of pigs nearby. The pigs ran into the water and they were drowned. So I'm going to go ahead and address this first. 
Because when this story is told, a lot of people go, oh my goodness, those poor pigs. Well, let's address the herd of pigs, because there are people out there that are really bothered by the death of this herd. I'm going to take the view from the pigs, because there's three. We have three views. We have the pigs, we have the demons, and we have Jesus. The pigs, they're an animal experiencing this kind of evil for the first time. I'm just a pig, and all of a sudden, the presence of evil has entered me. I mean, they could have easily lost all control. They could have lost all instinct. They could have lost their senses. It was just too much, and right? It could have been. I can't answer that. The demons, look at the destructive and violent work they performed in the lives of these two men. Look what they did to them, right? It could have been the demon's deceptive and murderous nature that was being displayed in a senseless destruction of this entire herd. Now, there were 2,000 pigs, folks. That's a lot. How many demons were there? At least 2,000. I personally think there were more. I think more than one entered each pig. I really do. Maybe not all. But these men had over 2,000 plus demons. Folks, that is a lot. So this herd was now the ones that were possessed. And this is Satan's ultimate goal for the world, this kind of destruction. It could have been. I can't answer that. What about Jesus? You know, just real quick, I want to say one more thing about Satan. And please don't miss this. He wants to do great harm to God's creatures. Satan wants to do great harm to God's creatures. Just please remember that. Let's talk about Jesus for a second. It could have easily been Jesus. It could have been the power of, uh, of our Lord and Savior um, over the spiritual realm who possibly destroyed the demons along with the pigs. It could have been. Again, I can't answer this. We don't have an answer because it doesn't tell us in the text. But those are the views out there. But it's not about these pigs. See, before leaving the demons... Before leaving, the demons asked, um, asked a question, and they asked, have you come here to torment us before the time? We talked about that a second ago. Of course, they're talking about judgment. There's a judgment. Satan and his fallen angels know that their time is limited. They know their time is limited. What can we do before we're judged? How many people can we pull away from God? And it's all about lies and deceit. The devil could care less about who they pull away. He could care less. He could care less that their eternity in hell is going to be torment day and night forever. He could care less as long as we're not looking at God. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. He does not want you to do that. Now, that's judgment. But here's our focus. This is awesome. Here's our focus. The demons begged him. All of these demons, they were begging Jesus, if you cast us out. And did you, did you catch that? Because here are the words that grabbed me this whole week. In my worship of Jesus, here it is. If you. Did you see that in your text? Everything is contingent on Jesus. That is amazing for me. Not the herdsmen nearby, not the disciples, not the men themselves, not even this huge number of demons. If you, Jesus, and what did Jesus say for? He said, one word, go. It's right there. 
He said, go for us too, make disciples of all men, right? He told these demons to go. They didn't wait around. Oh, we'll go in a minute, Jesus. Give us a second. They didn't stall. You guys got everything together? We got to leave. When he said go, they left. He was in charge. They answered to him, if you, Jesus. Jesus, you're in charge. Jesus, we're subject to you. We need your permission, Jesus. They begged, folks. They begged. Everybody there is just standing around a man and these demons who are terrifying, nobody could pass their way because they're so fierce, the super strength of these men, and they are begging Jesus. This is who we worship. This is who we worship. Doesn't that bring clarity? Isn't it amazing that we can take a story like this and use it to worship Jesus? I mean, look at his power being displayed here. And here is where I want to go with this. Have you guys ever heard of chunking? I'm not talking about throw up or anything. Chunking? I taught for years in Jacksonville, and I taught children with learning differences. And depending on their personal education plan, we called it a pet there, you could get accommodations awarded to you by the state. And one of those accommodations was called chunking, meaning if you had 100, it was for big tests and projects that would overwhelm a student. It's too much to study. I won't be able to, to remember all this. So chunking means they take like a 100-question test and you could break it up in two days, 50 each, or four days, 25, 20, so they could study better. It wasn't as overwhelming. They were able to focus. Folks, I've been chunking with you. The very first sermon was four verses. The next sermon was five. This is seven. I've got brothers and sisters out there that go, I read three chapters of the Bible last night. Oh, what'd you get? Well, I, don't know. I just read it to read it. And I'm like, no, go back and break it up. There is so much for us, and we can miss it if we're just reading. We need to learn to chunk Scripture, break it into these chunks so that we can absorb it. Chunking is a wonderful thing. In fact, we're going to do it right now. I need everybody to just pick. You already got the story in your mind. Just picture the story for me, and I want you to blur out some things. You ever watched a movie or a TV show? where the director will have the cameras blur out the background so that you're focused on only what they want you to focus on. Sometimes they blur out the foreground, the main characters, because they want you to see something happening in the background, and they'll make that focus. So here's what we're blurring out. I want you to blur out the boat. I want you to blur out the disciples that are there. I want you to blur out that herd of pigs uh, as well that just died. I want you to blur out the herdsmen, the landscape, Blur out the lake, blur out the tombs, blur everything out in this story except for Jesus and the two demoniacs. That's what we have. Their eyes are locked. When we sing the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, we're in anticipation of actually being able to see him face to face. They did. They locked eyes with him. Now, we've blurred everything out because it's not about the demons either. It's not. It's about Jesus making man clean, healing them completely. Two men who were otherwise hopeless. Folks, they were hopeless. There was nothing anyone could do for these men. Nothing. And then they had an encounter with Jesus. Notice that only the demons spoke. The men probably had no ability to speak or any control over their actions. For themselves, right? Because why? Because the power of these demons. 
the power of these demons. Man could do nothing. These men could do nothing. And this is just an example of Jesus' compassion for those in need who were not even able to call him for help. They didn't call him for help. Even when they, Jesus stood before him, they couldn't call for help. I mean, I hope you're seeing Jesus like I'm seeing him right now. So what we have here is compassion. Jesus, the creator of heaven and earth, he intervened and said, you have to go, and they left. This is our all-powerful Jesus. These men were too far gone. We say that about people we know. They're never going to become a Christian. They are too far gone. These men were too far gone. No one could do anything to save them. No one could do anything to help them. There was nothing to be done. But then there's Jesus. Then there's Jesus. I gained so much clarity, so much clarity this week in how I want to worship my Lord and Savior when I see him in this light. There were many times I worked on this and I had to stop because I was amazed because this story grabbed me and as I'm reading this story and I'm thinking about Jesus, all I could do was worship him. It was amazing. Do you know that many people came to see Christ? Many people came to see him. However, the leaders and all the townspeople, they didn't want him in their cities. That's not a shocker. I wasn't shocked. I mean, do you remember that before the crucifixion, they chose Barabbas. <laughs> they chose a horrible criminal over uh, Jesus before the crucifixion. In Luke 23, 18, it says, but they all cried out together, away with this man, talking about Jesus, away with this man, and release to us Barabbas. Folks, many rejected him, many mocked him, they attempted to kill him, they plotted, they schemed his uh, murder. Folks, they begged him to leave. They came out, they begged him to leave. The people did. There was other begging. The demons begged him to cast him out. But what I'm impressed with is that besides the demons and these local townspeople, there was another who begged. And this comes, of course, from Mark and Luke. And they're talking about the dominant man, the men that I'm talking about in this book of Matthew. They begged Jesus, I want to be with you. Please let me be with you. They begged. They begged to stay with Jesus. The demon's encounter calls them to ask Jesus to send them away. Those that came out to see what happened, they didn't truly see the miracle that these men received. They begged him to leave. Now, we can't be sure of the exact reason that they asked Jesus to leave, but it's nothing new to us. People refuse and reject Jesus every day, all the time. It's happened throughout all of the ages. But we can speculate that it had to either do with, to do with the proprietors of this herd, right? Or it could have been fear of his power, seeing these men cleaned. It could have been. Whether it be over the loss of property or the fear of, the, uh, uh, of how powerful Christ is, um, the same thing, it's going on today. People are saying, Jesus, please leave. Can you leave? It may not be exactly like this story, begging him to leave because of this kind of fear, but they're asking Jesus to leave. And you know what? He did. He did. Now, I need you, church family, to continue to blur everything out. 
blur everything out except for Jesus and these hopeless and helpless men. Can you see yourself standing in front of Jesus in the same hopeless and helpless condition? If you can't, you need to check up. You need a spiritual checkup, because I'm going to tell you right now, every single one of us has stood before Jesus, hopeless and helpless. We have faced this condition. And I can, I can tell you it's me. I can do it. I have gained so much clarity from this text. I see myself face-to-face with Christ, hopeless and helpless. This encounter made Jesus, made Jesus, excuse me, made them beg Jesus to go with him. In Mark 5.18, it says this. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. I want to be with you, Jesus. I want to be with you. I want to go where you go, Jesus. Man, you saved me. I love you. What an act of worship. What an absolute act of worship. As he was getting into that boat, I want to go with you. I know what just happened. I want to be with you. Are you there with me, church family? Are you there with me? Can you see it? In this text, can you see yourself? Can you see it? Because I'm telling you, it is so, I mean, I wish I could express to you the acts of worship throughout the week that I had just from this short text. I, I can't, but I can tell you that my worship of Christ was true and it was honest and it was genuine because all I could do was see what he was doing for these men. If you have truly had an encounter with Jesus Christ, you will know and understand why these men wanted to be with him. Right, church family? If you have encountered Jesus, you know why we want to be with him. I want to be with him. I bet you do too. You know, the text today should bring us to a place of devoted worship to our all-powerful Jesus. That's what it should do. These kinds of things should bring us to a place of devotion and worship of Jesus. So here's my challenge. I challenge you to look at the gospel stories, any of them. I challenge you to look at the gospel stories, the life of Jesus, and worship him through these stories. Look at the key words. Look at what he's doing. Look at what he's saying. Look at Jesus. Again, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Now, in this text today, I cannot do anything but worship Jesus. I can't. In fact, at the name of Jesus, right now, all I think about is what he did for these men. I've said that over and over. I could say it the rest of the day. Because all I did was study and chunk this scripture. And it hit me so hard. I made everything else go away except for what he did to clean these men. Purifying them. Making them clean. Because all I said, my goodness, that's what you did for me. I take it for granted all the time, but that's what you did for me. I was dirty, filthy, hopeless, helpless, But then there's Jesus. So I think about that. We were helpless. We were hopeless. Nothing could be done to save us, church family. No one could rescue us. You're not clean. You weren't safe. A lot of people think they are. I live a good life. 
you're not safe. Well, I do this and I do that. You're not safe. You were just as filthy and dirty as these two demoniacs standing before Jesus. But what did Jesus do? We had an encounter. We've been made clean. Like these men, we were too far gone, but then there's Jesus. He changes everything. And I want to close with this verse. Philippians 2, 9 and 10. You know it well. I've used it several times. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That is the power of Jesus Christ's name. That is the power behind his name. This is who we worship. We need to allow our weapon of choice, right, to become real to us as we read these stories and as we grow in the word. We have to see ourselves in this text, and it brings clarity, such clarity and you will begin to see your worship change, like mine did this week. You will begin to worship Jesus Christ through the very word of God, and it is an amazing encounter. That's my challenge, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I cannot thank you enough. I am so grateful that we have your word, your full word. Lord, we can grab this any time of the day or night and turn to you. Father, you teach us. You teach us. You instruct us. You correct us through this word. And you've given it to us to defend ourselves and to attack the evil one. Because we know it's not against flesh. We're not fighting flesh. No, we're fighting in the spiritual realm, Lord, and that's what you've given us. You guard us and you protect us. You've given us the beautiful Holy Spirit to indwell us. You've given us your word to fight back. You guard us. Lord, we are grateful for you. You are the one who stops the evil because they stop before you. They, sh- they, they shudder, Lord. They're terrified of you. And you are who we worship. You are our God. So we just want to praise the name of Jesus right now. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you. We were dirty. We were filthy. There was no hope. There was no help. There was no rescue. And there is Jesus. Let us worship him wholeheartedly. Father, give us the strength. Father, give us discernment. Give us focus. Illustrate and illuminate scripture for us, Lord. Let us worship your son like he deserves to be worshiped. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.